0: Amen. Welcome back to Asante Church. It has been a fun morning. Here we are, lifting the name of Jesus high. This is what we are called to do as believers. This morning, we are going to be continuing in our Summer on the Mount series, and our main scripture this morning is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37. So that's Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37. This morning, I want to share a, a quick illustration about a man who went to the doctor. He was having some trouble with circulation. He wasn't quite feeling like himself. And so he goes to the doctor. They run all these tests on his heart. And what the doctor finds out is that there's a 90% blockage in some of his arteries. And that if he doesn't get this taken care of, that death will be upon him sooner than he can even imagine. So what does this man do? This man says, "All right, doc, what do I need to do? the doctor starts to explain, hey, you need to make some changes in your life. But before he ever says what changes need to be made, this man says, oh, you know what, I know exactly what changes I need to make in order for my life to last longer, in order for me to get healthy, in order for my heart to be in the right place. And so the man leaves the hospital. He leaves the presence of his doctor. And the first thing he does is he goes and gets a haircut. He gets a nice mid-fade you know, little one on the side, inch and a half on top, he is looking clean. He is looking fresh and so clean, clean. And so from there, he goes from getting a haircut, he buys a suit. He says, if I'm going to have the hair for it, I'm going to have a suit that matches, and my attire is going to also be so fresh and so clean, clean. And from there, he goes, haircut, suit, to the car wash. Because if you look good, you've got to have a car that looks good. And so he goes to the car wash. He gets the car all detailed, doesn't even do it himself. leaves a nice tip for the people that help him out. He's looking good. His car is looking good. And then he goes home, and you know, he says, you know what? I'm looking fresh. I'm feeling fresh. Now I'm going to get fresh. And so he takes a shower. And you know what? All of that work that he just put in changes for his heart. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. When Jesus is addressing his disciples, when Jesus is addressing the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount that have gathered before him, he is speaking against these misinterpretations of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have taken the law, and they've applied it to their lives, and they have made changes that are on the outside only. And what Jesus is saying is it's not just about the outside, it is about the inside. See, what the doctor would have told that man, if you're going to make it, If you're going to have a life that is quality, if we're going to get your heart back in the right condition, there has to be a change from the inside. There has to be a change in your diet. There has to be a change in your exercise. There has to be a change in your lifestyle. And so what these Pharisees were doing, they were getting a lot of things right on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were wicked. Their hearts were dark. And so their outward appearance, they were not breaking any laws, but on the inside, they were absolutely wicked. So what we see Jesus do here in verses 28, 21 through 48 is he takes six different laws, six sins that these people were dealing with. And so we're going to be talking about four of those sins this morning. And so I hope you wore steel toe boots today. We're going to be talking about four sins that we deal with all the time. Some of us are going to get a little upset. Some of us are going to start to feel a little shame, a little conviction. I want to speak against that from the get-go. That is from the enemy but conviction. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. So let's let the Holy Spirit do his work in our lives this morning as we speak on this sin. Because what Jesus is doing in verses 21 through 48 is he is reframing, he is reinterpreting, and he is clarifying the Old Testament law that was misinterpreted by the Pharisees. And he does this over and over again, reframing after reframing. You have heard this. Well, I say this. So, Jesus does exactly what he did the rest of his ministry. He goes in, he flips everything upside down. He flips the tables on them. So today, let's start with anger. This is going to be Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. Go ahead and turn there. Scroll there. Get your phones going. We'll meet right there. Jesus starts with anger. He says, you have heard it. be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison truly I say to you you will never get out until you have paid the last penny so what is Jesus flipping the tables on what is Jesus reframing and reclarifying for us the very first Sin that he touches on out of these six is anger. And he says, if you are angry, then that is committing murder in your heart. What does the world say about anger? The world says anger is good. The world says anger is strong. The world says anger is a superpower. We have a big green guy in purple pants walking around in the Marvel universe that is devoted to this idea that the angrier I get, the more powerful I become. And that is not the truth. The angrier we get, the more out of control and the weaker we actually are. What does the world say? The world says stay triggered. Stay unhappy. Find something to be upset about. The world says they deserve it. The world says you have earned your anger. You are justified. The world says teach them a lesson. What does the law say? The law When Jesus says, you have heard it said, Jesus is quoting Exodus 20, verse 13, and this is the sixth commandment. He says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So a lot of us here today are like, okay, cool. I haven't murdered anybody. Hopefully not this week. All right. Hopefully never. So I'm good. I'm in the clear. I don't have to worry about any of this. But what does Jesus say? Verses 22 through 26. Jesus narrows it down says, if you are angry with someone, you commit murder in your heart. Not only that, if you insult someone out of anger, it is worthy of the same punishment as murder. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying it's not about the outside. It's not that you have blood on your hands or not. Jesus is saying this is about your heart. And if you have been angry with someone, then you are guilty of murdering them. That seems a little extreme. That seems a little intense, and I think that's exactly what Jesus is going for. So what do we do as people who have been angry? What do we do as murderous people now with the old law restructured in front of us? First thing we do is we deal with the hurts. We see this verses 23 through 26. We seek forgiveness before we go to God. It says, leave your gift there before the altar. What happens here is he is speaking to his disciples. These are people that were Jewish men. And so in the temple of Herod, where they would have worshiped, there were four courts. The first court was the court of the Gentiles. The second was the court of the women. The third was the court of the men. And the fourth was the court of the priests. And so you would walk in, Jesus' audience is his disciples. These are Jewish men. They would have walked into the court of Gentiles. Past all the Gentiles, they would have walked through the court of women where all the women were worshiping and going to the altar. Then they would have walked to the court of men. They would have walked up to the altar. They would have placed their sacrifice on the altar. And then they would take inventory of their heart. And they would place a hand on the altar, place a hand on their sacrifice. And if in that moment, as embarrassing as it would be, Jesus is saying, Take your hand off the altar back away, go out of the court of the men, with everybody around you seeing you, with everybody saying there's something that he hasn't taken care of. Go through the court of women, where all the women would see you walking right back out way too soon for you to have just taken sacrifice, way too soon for you to have just offered your worship up to the Lord. Don't worry about what they say. Keep walking through the court of the Gentiles, and then leave the temple of Herod and deal with your sin, deal with what is wrong on your heart, and then, after you've sought forgiveness, after you've sought reconciliation, then go and offer your worship to God. I think a lot of us can come into church, and we can get dressed up. Shoot, you might have even showered today, okay? You come in here, and we try to have it all together, and that's not what this is. This is a hospital. This is a room full of people that are broken, that are hurting, that are messed up, that need a Savior to save them, that is certainly me. I hope that is you. If you've come here and you're trying to have it all together, you're trying to be perfect, stop. Have some grace on yourself. Put that down. Leave the altar. Go take care of what needs to be taken care of, and then when your heart is in the right place, unhypocritically go before God and say, you know what, God? Now I'm in the right place. Now I offer my worship to you. What I want us to understand is that God wants our hearts. He does not want Our cover-ups. God wants our transformation of the heart over our behavior modification. That can only get us so far. Ceremony, regular worship attendance, how much you give to the church every Sunday is not going to give you a clear conscience. If you have been angry, if you have murdered someone in your heart, these things are good. They are part of worship, but they are not going to set things right in your heart, in your soul, in your mind only forgiveness, only reconciliation, only true forgiveness through Jesus and true life in him can produce a clear conscience. And so I don't know where you're coming into church this morning, but that can only take place through Jesus. So we seek forgiveness before we get what we deserve. We don't let it drag on. We don't let it continue to affect everyone else around us. We reconcile, we forgive, we are forgiven, and then we worship buckle your seatbelts, folks. We're about to talk about lust and adultery. Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with in- lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. So what does the world say? What does the world say when it comes to lust? The world says, enjoy it. It is natural. What does the world say? The world says, look, but don't touch. Look all you want, but don't touch. Because that is where the harm comes in but it doesn't take into account the the harm that we do to our hearts. The world says about lust that everyone does it. And not only does everyone does it, but the world commercializes it. They encourage it to men and to women. If I can just buy the right cologne, if I can just drive the right car, I think I'll look like Chris Hemsworth. And then my life will be complete. And then maybe I can be Thor in the next Marvel movie. At least in the later ones. Here's what the law says. The seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This alludes to the tenth commandment, Exodus 20:17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And this sin, this breaking the law by committing adultery is punishable by death. And so this is something that would be taken extremely seriously. So that's what the world says. That's what the law says. What does Jesus say? Verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, if you lust after someone, not just commit the act of adultery, not just commit the act of unfaithfulness, but look at someone, another man, another woman with lust in your eyes, that you commit adultery with that person in your heart. Once again, it is not about the act itself. It is about the heart behind the act. We have to realize that the act itself never happens unless there is originally a heart behind it. It festers inside of us. It continues to be something we think about until it becomes normal. And when it becomes normal, then we act on it. So what do we do? We get rid of temptation, verses 29 through 30. Jesus is using hyperbole. He is not actually meaning tear out your eye. He's not actually meaning cut off your arm or dismember yourself. This was actually something that used to take place quite a bit, and it had to be completely outlawed because people did not realize Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He is giving an extreme example to say, hey, I want to get your attention so that you see how real this sin is, so you, you see it is destroying your life. So let's keep our eyes, let's keep our hands before we do anything else, but let's sever our ties. Let's cut off our ties with lust. Let's cut off our ties with temptation. I'm not just talking to the men in the room. I'm talking to the women in the room, okay? I've seen the movie Aquaman. I know what people do, all right? When they see Jason Momoa, you lose your mind. You're like, am I even married? I'm not sure anymore. Hey, it's both parties, men and women. So here's what we need to do if we're going to cut off temptation in our lives. We need to gain accountability. We need to bring a brother or a sister into our lives that we can be open with. We can be open with our sin. We can be open about our relationships. We can be open about our daily interactions. We can be open about what we look at on our screens, in front of our computers. We cannot go about it alone. The next thing we do, we shed light on our sin. Sin that is left in darkness. Sin that is kept as a pet sin in private only grows Bigger and stronger. When you bring sin to the light of day, it starts to wither away. Sin is like a vampire, and not the twilight vampires that sparkle like diamonds when light hits them. I'm talking about real vampires. As soon as the light of day hits them, it fades away. All right? We need to make our sin known. We need to share it. We need to make it public because when we keep it in the dark, it's like keeping a pet cub lion in your closet. And every time you run to that pet sin, you feed it a little bit more. You know what's going to happen eventually? I don't know if you've seen Lion King, but they have that sweet montage where Simba grows up, and he's doing this on the log with Timon and Pumbaa, and he's got like this little lion mohawk at one point, and then eventually he turns out to be the king that Simba would end up being. Your sin is going to do that same thing. Probably not hang out with Timon and Pumbaa, but if you keep your sin locked away secret in a closet, it will continue to grow. It will continue to fester until one day that lion bites back until one day that lion prowls around because the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And if that doesn't work, we set up roadblocks. It is better to lose your internet access than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to lose your gym membership than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to lose access to social media than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better to lose that one tempting relationship that nobody quite knows about that makes you feel good on the side than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then Jesus continues, and he talks about divorce. Verse 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what does the world say? The world says when the going gets tough, the tough lawyer up. And the tough get a divorce. The world says, we we just weren't in love anymore. We just fell apart. The world says, we just changed over the years. The world says, I just wasn't happy anymore. The world says, I just needed some time for me. And I want to reframe all of this real quick for us as believers, completely separate from this. Maybe your marriage was given to you. Maybe God blessed you with your spouse so that he could make you holy over happy. Because I think a lot of times when we try to fulfill the desires of our hearts, we go for happy, when happy in the end will kill us. we are called to be holy. So anytime your wife starts nagging at you, say, hey, thanks for making me holy. My wife has never nagged at me. She's the best. I don't know what y'all are talking about. Here's what the law says. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then it continues on what was taking place back in this day. We're not going to dive super into divorce right now. If you want to dive into that further, Matthew 19 is a chapter to study a little bit later in the Gospels. What happens here is Jesus is taking a teaching of the day. If you find any indecency in your wife, then you can give her a certificate of divorce. And so there are two rabbinical schools that are kind of waging war with each other. One is a Hyperliberal school, the rabbinical school of Hilel, and the rabbinical school of Hilel would say, you can find indecency with your wife if she burns your grilled cheese sandwich, if her cooking upsets your stomach, if she is walking around and her hair is down, if she is found talking to another man out in public. That is a form of indecency that you could file for divorce. Now, on the other hand, there is a conservative rabbinical school, the school of Shammai, far right wing, far conservatives, and they would say any types of sexual misconduct outside of marriage will be a form of adultery, something that you can file for divorce. Now, why is it so important that Jesus is trying to correct these teachings? Because this was a sin. If you broke this law, it was punishable by death. And later on, the Pharisees would come to Jesus and they would ask him, what is your stance on this? And so Jesus reframes it here. Here's what he says, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, that seems kind of hopeless. If you divorce, unless they've already committed adultery, you cause them to commit adultery, and then when they remarry, they commit adultery. So that's adultery, 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 and then if not then, then one day, adultery. Here's why. The covenant between God and man and woman was never meant to be broken. When two people are unified physically, when two people are unified spiritually, no one else is ever supposed to come into that picture. It is a covenant between God and husband and wife forever. And I'm talking like Sandlot forever, all right? Forever. 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 There is no breaking this up. This is like when you get super glue on your hands and you don't want know what to do and so you have to cry out for help. That might have happened recently. When God comes between <laughs> when <in laughs> I think some of y'all did that this week too. When anyone comes between those two people and their covenant with God, it is adultery. Even when it takes place after marriage. And so again, what do we do? We treat marriage as God intended it. We look all the way back at Genesis. This is two people together forever. In the perfect world, in the perfect creation, before sin, before the fall of man in the garden, there was no way out of marriage. There was no way out of this covenant, of this binding contract between husband and spouse, husband and wife with God. We are unified with him through his gift of physical intimacy, and that means forever And so, what are we to do? We are to treat marriage as a special gift and the special covenant that it is that God gives us. And then Jesus goes on to oaths. Verse 33 Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or or by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head. You cannot make a hair white or black. They did not clearly have just for men back then. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." What does the world say about us? The world says it was just a little white lie. The world says everyone lies. It is okay. The world says I don't need to uphold my end of this. They will understand I'm just really busy right now. The world says things have changed. Something came up. They'll get it. The world says it was in their best interest. The world says it is in my best interest. And the world says they would not have believed me otherwise. So what does the law say? This is where I was actually shocked in studying. The law says, do it. Swear, make a vow. Vows are encouraged. Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. Jeremiah 12, 16 and 17. Swearing by God's name will be a sign of grace. But here's the problem. Don't you dare break that swear. Don't you dare break that oath, that vow, that promise. Not upholding vows was insanely discouraged. Leviticus 19:12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Breaking vows meant serious punishment. And what happened is that teaching would eventually grow corrupt. If you made a vow or you swore an oath and it was on anything or to anyone and it was not anything to do with God, then you did not have to uphold it. And so people would start to say, well, by my life, I will do this. Or by my beard, I will do this. Or by that bird in the sky or on Jerusalem. Or this is the craziest part. They could say, I swear toward Jerusalem. And if they said they swear toward Jerusalem, well, that that's just like... Fingers crossed behind your back. But if they say they swear on Jerusalem, the city of the great king, well, that is where there is trouble. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, No more oaths. This is getting ridiculous. No more oaths by anything. Why? Because God stands behind everything. God is in control, not us. So stop swearing on things and leaving them unfulfilled. This is sinful. So, church family, here at the close, what do we do? Hey, this is pretty simple be a person of your word if you're gonna say you're gonna do something then do it if you're not gonna be able to do something then don't say that you'll do it let your yes be your yes let your no be your no don't swear by anything or anyone let's be kingdom people let's be righteous people let's be followers of the word that live lives of truth in a deceptive world where we do not know what the truth is anymore let people look at you in your life and say that is where truth can be found. That person is honest. If they tell me anything, I know they don't have to swear because they are going to come through for me. So, now what? What now that we are all angry, murderous, lustful, adulterous, divorced, or products of divorce, covenant-breaking, oath-breaking liars? That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot that we need to take inventory of, just as these disciples would have done. So what are we feeling right now? I think if we're being honest, a lot of us are probably feeling guilt as we look back at our lives. A lot of us are feeling shame. A lot of us are feeling like you are disqualified, and I want you to know that that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Jesus is our qualification. And the enemy is the only one, the accuser is the only one that will whisper lies into your ear that say, no, you need to feel shameful. No, you need to feel guilt. Because when we feel shame, when we feel guilt, we are stuck. And we cannot move forward in what God has for us. But when we turn to Jesus, when we feel conviction, conviction, now that, now that's from the Holy Spirit. And conviction moves us out of this shame, out of this guilt. And we take our sin to God and say, yeah, God, I messed up. And you know what? you know I messed up because you know every inch of me. You knew every hair on my head before I was ever even born. You knew everything I would ever do. And Jesus, knowing everything you would ever do, still took the cross for you. And so we go to him for forgiveness. And then for us believers, when we get out of that shame, when we get out of that guilt, when we feel conviction, then we go to Jesus. We repent, we ask for forgiveness, and we move on. Conviction brings us closer to Jesus. Shame and guilt keeps us running from God. And so get rid of this mess. Get rid of this nonsense. Get rid of this baloney. Leave it there. Realize that it is wrong. Realize that it is a lie. You are not who the enemy is saying that you are. You know who you are? In Jesus, you are clean. In Jesus, you are made new. In Jesus, you are redeemed. That is who you are no longer murderous, no longer angry, no longer a lustful adulterer, no longer a sinner, but now a saint. The very man, the very God, Jesus, that clarified and interpreted this new, true law was the very Jesus that just refocused the meaning of the law and seemingly identified us as worse off than we were. And that same man, came to fulfill the law. That same man perfected the law. That same man never sinned. Jesus fulfilled every jot, every tittle of the law. If you saw Jacob's sermon video last week, we realize that all of it, all of the law, all the prophets fulfilled in Jesus because he was perfect, and that our Jesus that fulfilled the law became the perfect sacrifice for our inability to keep the law. He lived a perfect life, and he died a gruesome death. Why is that? So that we, in putting our faith in him, could be forgiven of the laws that we have broken, so that we could inherit his righteousness, so that we could be set free from that law, so that we could live in grace, so that we could be transformed from everything that we were in this guilt, and everything that we were in the shame, to living lives of grace, feeling convicted, taking it to Jesus, and moving closer to him. What Jesus says is that we are not angry, murderous, lying, oath-breaking, adulterous, divorced, sinful people. Jesus says we are saints, we are sons, we are daughters, we are made new, we are made clean, and we are his. Never let that go. You are his. Jesus says it's all about the heart. We can change the outside all we want. Behavior modification isn't going to do anything. You can put lipstick on a pig, and it is still going to be a pig. And I would not advise you kissing that pig. Jesus says we can try as hard as we want to get things right and to get things together. But it's about a transformation. It's about a transformation and a renewal of the mind. All through Jesus. First point this morning. And almost the final point, Jesus calls his disciples to live radically different lives. Jesus calls his disciples to live radically different lives, radically different in their thought lives, radically different in their relationships, radically different in their, with their spouses, and radically different in their commitment to the word, to their word. Second final point, man that was quick, radical, Jesus calls us for radical change, and radical change takes place through radical submission. So let's turn our hearts over to Jesus. Let's turn our thoughts over to Jesus. Let's turn from our sin, and let's be made new. Let's live radical lives as the disciples lived radical lives. Let us let Jesus call us into relationship with him, and let us respond to that, realizing that we have fallen short, realizing that we cannot live up to the law, and we were never meant to live up to the law. We were meant to rely on Jesus and his perfection to inherit his righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And as we see this morning, we so desperately need you. Father, meet us where we are this morning as we have revealed and reframed sin in our lives. Father, meet us in our anger. Meet our hearts. Change our hearts. Transform our hearts so that we will not commit murder. Father, meet us in our lust. Guard our eyes. Help us to make a covenant with our eyes that we will no longer lust and fall into the t- temptation, the sin, the trap of adultery. Father, be with us in our marriages. And Father, where our marriages have fallen apart, where they've broken apart, and where we feel like we are failures, help us to realize that that is not who we are. But Jesus, that we are made new in You, and we are no longer sinful divorced people who have committed adultery, but we are your sons, your daughters, and as kingdom people, as kingdom citizens, as this church, as your church, help us to be radically committed to our word and keeping it. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross, that because of it, we are forgiven. We thank you for your life, that it was perfect, that it fulfilled the law and set us free to having li- to, from having to have to live perfect lives because you lived a perfect life, and you gave yours up for ours, and in that we received your righteousness. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand. Let's worship.